Welcome to Ermy Podcast. This is Joel Applebaum, the Chief Content Officer at Ermy. And for over 40 years, Ermy has been an industry leader in educating and informing construction insurance risk management professionals. We are pleased to bring you this SNAP talk from the Ermy Construction Risk Conference. It's titled, Transfer of Non-Traditional Risks in Construction Contracts by Adrian Palin. Adrian is a Managing Director and Infrastructure Leader in the United States and Canada for Marsh. In this podcast, you'll learn to navigate the uncharted waters of risk assumption associated with new project delivery methods, such as design-build, public-private partnerships, as well as the availability of risk transfer mechanisms for these exposures. I hope you enjoy it. The amount of risk transfer changing adversely uh, in the eyes of contractors. There is tremendous infrastructure deficits across the world, but most notably here in the U.S. We have a $2 trillion deficit. Uh, the Association of uh, Civil Engineers actually gave us a D plus, or I think it might even be D minus, if I'm not mistaken, in the 2007 uh, or 17 risk report. We have no way of funding infrastructure right now. Um, this is a major challenge for our country. And in order to get over this deficit, we're increasingly tapping into the private sector, uh, not only from a construction perspective, but being responsible for operations and maintenance of our infrastructure assets, but financing as well. In return for that opportunity of financing, there's an opportunity to gain profit uh, for contractors or other partners in the infrastructure stakeholder community. However, that doesn't come without unbalanced risk transfer. No longer are contractors taking on responsibility just for construction risk, it's design risk. They're taking on risk for permitting and utilities and the like. We're also seeing a very global market for the US and Canada. It's a very attractive industry. There's a tremendous amount of pent up demand as we talked about with this major infrastructure deficit. Uh, it's also very attractive in the context that, although I think you can debate political risk, particularly in this country, um, States and municipalities, in spite of a lack of a federal infrastructure plan, are actually going ahead and investing in roads, bridges, highways, as well as social infrastructure. And because of the attractiveness and competitiveness of the market, we're seeing very global, it's a global, uh, a global construction environment. We've seen contractors come over from Spain, Italy, and France into North America over the last 15 years. And China, uh, up until last year, we saw very tense geopolitical tensions. This environment it changes, changes the paradigm for, for contractors in particular. Um, and when you have, again, limited productivity gains, although there are being investments in tech, um, it's very hard to double down on technology investments because you're in a very competitive environment. And what happens if that tech doesn't work? So again, it's a, a very much a balancing act on how much you can invest in new technologies. So again, projects getting more complex, ever, ever increasing in size, you know, challenges around productivity, uh, you know, being asked to take on more responsibility to deliver major infrastructure in a very competitive environment. So those conditions create a very unbalanced center of, of risk transfer for contractors. Again, I know this is a bit of an eyesore. I don't expect everyone to read this, but I think looking at the three pendulums or three columns on this slide, we look at traditional construction, design, bid, build, design, build, and then design, build, finance, O&M. Um, there's really no standardization, particularly in the, the right two um, columns. But the point I'd really like to get across is as you start to go across on the right-hand side, um, we're seeing an emergence in fixed-price contracting, design-build, certainly in P3 and otherwise. Um, but there are critical risks that contractors are accepting that they've never had to accept before. Um, utility relocation risk. 
You know, government, con government contracts are increasingly pushing that down. And they're not only government contracts. We're seeing that in private developer contracts as well. Uh, right of way and, and, and permitting. Um, the one I spend a great deal of time on is around ground conditions. And that's not only geological or geotechnical conditions, but could it be you know, hazardous materials, environmental conditions. Uh, and contractors are increasingly taking on more and more risk in that area. And to give you a concrete example, a number of design-build projects that we've worked on, both in the US as well as Canada, pass on responsibility for known conditions, which I think relatively people can get comfortable trying to quantify you know, with some level of variance. You have to do a redevelopment. There'll be some level of quantification around what the remediation cost will be for you know, X contaminants. But where it gets very interesting is a lot of these contracts now, again, because of those seismic shifts I talked about earlier, are pushing on responsibility for known and then readily discoverable and inferable conditions. What the heck does that mean? Uh, you know, what's readily discoverable and infer inferable? And virtually every design-build contract I've looked at in the US as well as Canada has a similar clause to that. And that really puts a reverse onus on contractors to prove that it shouldn't have been readily inferable or discoverable. Again, just, just something I wanted to really highlight as an area of focus for us. Um, another one we wanted to look at is force majeure. So I think, again, very standard in most construction contracts around fire, certainly the key traditional perils that you'd have in any project. Um, what's more challenging now is we're seeing projects highlight force majeure for things like nuclear events and other events, which is standard. However, there's no... Uh, in the termination rights in the contract, there may not be a payout to the contractor if they've built the asset and they're sharing in the risk of the force majeure. Um, again, that's pretty catastrophic if you have a project that's you know, 80, 90% complete and there are clauses in, the, in your insurance policy that aren't insurable, such as nuclear in many respects. So there are a number of things I like to do. I'm, I'm, I am certainly not a very quantitative-oriented individual, but looking at risks, I like to put things out on a chart. So um, I, you know, everyone has their own methodologies of how they like to analyze risks. Um, when I'm looking at a project in particular, you know, what I'd, at least I see as my own best practice is engaging with, as a broker, the client, um, various stakeholders, both on from the construction side, design side, the project owner, could be a financier if it's project financed and to try and get a better understanding through discovery of what are the critical risks. Of course, we can review contracts and look at some high-level project details, but it's always good to, to make sure that it's you know, a well-informed exercise. And we kind of just, again, casually map out frequency and severity based on the risks that we identify um, and focus our attention really on that upper right-hand quadrant. So what's high frequency, what's high severity? And this is just an example of a project that I was looking at in New York, and of course, workers' comp is, is very much... Um, high on the list. So with that risk ma mapping exercise, it usually gets us to help identify some kind of critical issues um, that may be unaddressed through a traditional insurance policy. The next thing that we typically do is a risk matrix. And I know there are risk registers that are done for various contracts, uh, and people I'm sure around this room have their own best practices. Uh, but again, what I really look at in this context is going through the contract, using that stakeholder discovery discussion, and then putting the various issues you know, in, a, in a spreadsheet or some other template, but then mapping those to insurance products, traditional insurance products. And why that's important, it really ensures that there's very much a transparent uh, diagnostic around risks that are being assumed in a construction contract are appropriately being transferred or not appropriately being transferred, being negotiated um, for appropriate risk allocation with an owner or some other counterparty. I'll give you a couple of examples of where this worked. 
Um, you, know, you can see the example of the hazardous materials in the bottom. I mean, that was a contract design build where we had this readily inferable uh, conversation. There was no requirement for pollution insurance in the contract. And a traditional contractor's pollution policy would not bring up or cover um, any ground condition risk that is assumed contractually. So we had to look at another insurance product to kind of take on some of that contractual liability the contractor was in the event of assuming. Another one that, I, that comes to mind recently, and, and part of what I wanted to talk about today was some emerging and new products. I know there are a number of sessions occurring at ERMI around parametric uh, and weather insurance products, which are kind of the sexy and cool thing right now. Um, I still think there's a lot of room to go on utilization of these products, but I had one project in Canada um, outside of Edmonton for a light rail, and uh, the, co the construction contract was, was a very dense timeline on delivery, and the contractor came to us with a concern that we identified through this discovery process that, hey, we're really nervous about the condensed delivery schedule and extreme temperatures. I don't know if anyone's been to Edmonton. I see a couple of Canadians in the room that probably have. It can be quite horrible, middle of winter, uh, minus 40, not uncommon from time to time. So we tried to negotiate with the owner around the contract to say, hey, if, if it gets too cold, you know, we can't work. And, or the cost would be exorbitant, and we have to pass that cost through to keep the workers warm. Um, ultimately, what we ended up looking at was a parametric product. So essentially, if the temperature dropped below minus 30 Celsius, which was the trigger, the product kicked in place and it would cover the additional cost to pay for heating equipment, or we would structure it to the LDs that would be paid if they were late. Just one other thing I did want to mention um, in terms of the products uh, area. There are so many risks that are being assumed, again, that aren't around traditional insurance risks. So particularly in big infrastructure and just mega projects in general. I think everyone in this room has had exposure to a very politically charged project. Um, you know, pipelines certainly are one of them. I mean, I think everyone's familiar with what's happened with TransCanada as an example in the Keystone XL. But light rail systems, tunnels, roads. Um, I live in Chicago, and, and you know, infa infamously, there was an Elon Musk project that got initiated where he was actually going to come in and pay for a high-speed train from O'Hare to downtown Chicago. I thought, well, what better solution? Because right now I take the, the subway, and although there, we do have a subway train, it still takes about an hour. Um, this train would have used you know, Tesla vehicles that would have been um, you know, altered to get 16 passengers at a time downtown in 15 minutes. You know, how great would that have been? Uh, he would have financed this himself off his own balance sheet, put in his own equity, not asked for any public sector financing. But there was such adverse public reaction to to this project and Elon coming in and making profits off of public transit and you know we should use that funding for other projects. It was just so politically charged, the project's not been done. And this is a free asset essentially to, to the public. Um, it happens with condominium projects all the time. It happens with um, light rail and other things. So one of the things we were focused on um, for one of our clients was, well, what happens if we get this project initiated agreement with the owner, we've used some kind of financing source, or we've got all this expensive equipment from overseas and have very high carrying costs, you know, how do we manage those out-of-pocket expenses if there's no damage, but we have social unrest? So we actually worked with a couple of insurers to cover, um, you know, what we saw was debt service cost and cost of carrying expensive equipment that they had from overseas, as well as uh, fixed cost of employees to carry that in the event that we had some protests. So there's just, you know, there's a lot of creativity, I think, when we kind of peel back the onion a little bit on some of these non-traditional risks. Uh, to kind of wrap up, I know I've got a couple of minutes here. Um, you know, I think if I had three takeaways, I'm a big rule of three person. 
Um, and I hope you found this helpful, but I think, again, because of all those seismic shifts that I talked about earlier, risk allocation and contracts is changing. We've obviously seen a number of major players in the industry exit that space. With that being said, these projects are still getting done. Uh, I think early assessment is critical to figuring out how to better reallocate these risks altogether, whether it's you know, sharing with an authority, offsetting to some other third party, or just ensuring that there's some you know, risk mechanism in place. I worked on a major project recently uh, in the Pacific, and of course, quake is a major issue. Uh, would have been catastrophic if we had a loss. We were, we were able to kind of identify through our, our you know, allocation exercise and doing a little bit of quantification what the expected risk was, and then correlated that with the extreme cost of insurance. We actually negotiated back and forth with the owner that we would take the first $5 million of risk, split the next 25, and then the owner would take the residual amount. But it brought the overall cost of the project to be much lower because we didn't have to buy you know, full value for, uh, for earthquake. The other thing I'd like to say is that I won't call it a hard market. I think we'd all agree it's an infirming insurance market. With that being said, I think people are very willing to talk about out-of-the-box opportunities. There's a glut of capital still within the industry. You know, I think evidence of that is parametric. I talked about social unrest. Um, one other solution we recently uh, put in place, just for a very small limit, was this archaeological cover. So going back to my point a little bit earlier about that kind of hairy line on discovery and readily inferable conditions. We had a major contractor in the Northeast doing a project um, and worried about you know, discovering some, some artifacts. Uh, we had a stage one archeological assessment done which showed that it was clean, but we were worried about if we had to find this, you know, it would have caused significant delay to the project and it was a design build finance. So we would have had risk of repaying the debt. Um, so we were able to kind of look at structuring a product that would cover in the event we find artifacts or human remains um, delay costs as well as any assessment costs. So I think, again, to leave you, in, in my opinion, is I think there's still tremendous opportunity in spite of the firming mark. So thank you and happy to take any questions. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe to Army Podcast and your podcast app for more talks like this and to be notified when new episodes are released.